Good morning. We're, um, we just came through the worst phase of the building project, of uh, refurbishing our building. It's the dustiest it will be, and it's going to get better in the weeks ahead. But thanks for, um, thanks for traveling through with us. We had a cleaning committee team here last night on the schedule, but not in reality. So you should have seen uh, the staff with uh, mops and dusters. But it'll get better, and I thank you for your patience on that as we redo some of our uh, circa 1977 building. That's what we're here to do. If you have a Bible, I want you to open with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel. And we're in chapter 5, and we're going to go through chapter 6 and then take a break in Daniel. And uh, so today, chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a challenging chapter because it has um, a great deal of similarity to any society and even our own. We learned last week that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom He will. That God is sovereign over all the nations. And in some way, using human agency, God raises up kings and He sets them down. And we are able to enter into a historical context of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament of the Scriptures and know that many of the facts that are written there have been verified by thousands of Babylonian manuscripts as to its accuracy. When you come to chapter 5, you have the end of the Babylonian Empire and an eyewitness account of that. So you'll remember that we began Daniel chapter 1 70 years earlier where the people of Israel were taken into captivity to Babylon. And Daniel was among them with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were in the kingdom of Babylon through King Nebuchadnezzar. And now here we are on the very last night of the Babylonian Empire, recorded for us by Daniel in chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the first king, died in 562 B.C. This is 23 years later. The fall of Babylon was 539 B.C. A series of kings followed Nebuchadnezzar. It was a very um, corrupt kingdom. Uh, sons were put on the throne and were murdered. Others were instituted and uh, were, were killed as well. And a series of kings led to Nabonidus. Nabonidus was the king. And Belshazzar was a historical person, probably the son of the Babylonian king Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was the king over the Babylonian Empire, but at some point before this, he took a hiatus and went to the oasis of Tima in Arabia. And Belshazzar, his son, was thought to be a co-regent with Nabonidus. And it is Belshazzar, which sounds like Daniel's name, Belteshazzar, but he is now king of the Babylonian Empire. 
As I said, 70 years had passed since Daniel chapter 1, which means that Daniel is in his 80s. Think of that. He's been faithful in captivity for all these years. And he's going to give us a firsthand eyewitness account. Let's begin reading in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Just stop there for a minute. The behind the scenes is amazing because in the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2, in which there was a statue and uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the great golden head and uh, the Babylonian Empire was going to be succeeded by another kingdom, we're on the verge of that happening. But on the night in which it occurs, King Belshazzar is making a great feast with thousands of his lords and they're drinking like crazy. It really is um, a party unlike any other. He sat up on a platform and before thousands of other lords and officials, he, he led the feast into drunkenness and history tells us it was a debauched orgy as well. What they, don't, what they know is that four months perhaps earlier, the Persian army had come and taken all of the surrounding area around the city of Babylon. And they were right outside the gate. And yet Belshazzar's inside partying away and felt really invincible. That's because of what we'll learn about the city itself. But he thought that the walls of his city and the wealth that he had could secure him from any danger. But we'll see, you can't be secure from God's judgment, no matter what you have. Verse 2, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. He has an idea that what he should do is go to get the vessels that had not been touched since his father. That's the way the Hebrew scriptures and Aramaic too don't have a word for grandfather, but his forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken those vessels when Israel was taken captive, and they apparently had been in storage. We don't have any other reference. But on this night, while he's drinking and having this debauched party with concubines, wives, and all of these other officials, he says to himself, we should go get these vessels. Verse 3, then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Now this is amazingly brazen. He commanded that these temple vessels of Yahweh would be brought in to be misused in a drunken orgy. And he drank and praised the gods of gold and silver and brass and iron, wood and stone. He took what was sacred and employed it for common, even debased use 
in his own self-gratifying worship experience. The, verse in, the phrase in verse 2, when he tasted the wine, indicates that he tasted it thoroughly and he was drunk. And if he had been more sober, he perhaps would not have acted in such a sacrilegious way. But using the vessels of Yahweh in an intentional gesture to praise the gods of gold and silver and brass, stone and wood, these vessels had been in place until the time of this very night. And it's as if he said, hey, bring me those chalices. Bring me all those vessels. We're going to drink out of that. And I'm telling you, when that occurred, um, it was a desecration, a blasphemy, openly defying the God of Israel. And in fact, Belshazzar knew, because later on in the chapter, he has a conversation with Daniel when Daniel's brought in, and he says, I know who you are, you're that Daniel. And my father, Nebuchadnezzar, heard about your prophecies. So Belshazzar knows who Daniel is, and he knows that all of the prophecies that Daniel had made had come true. And yet he goes on and carries out this terrible act of idolatry. He could have chosen a more degrading way to desecrate the vessels of God. God who hates idolatry and he hates immorality and he hates drunkenness. And that's what Belshazzar is doing with the absolute precious vessels of Yahweh. Why did he single out these vessels? They had many gods, but why did he take these? Let me see if I can help you understand, and that's what gets to the point of this judgment. He would have been 14 years old when Nebuchadnezzar had died, and he would have known of God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, particularly in the prophecy of chapter 2, where God had given to Daniel the interpretation that the kingdom of Babylon would be succeeded by another nation. And ancient sources have indicated that the Medo-Persian troops under King Cyrus had already conquered, as I said, all of the surrounding area around the city, perhaps as long as four months prior, which would explain why all of these officials are in the city, because it's now the fortress, and anybody in the nation would have come back into the city to be with the king and to be in a protected fortress, that is, the city of Babylon. They had pride in their city and all the deities that they worshipped. Their city was beautiful. We've spoken about that over the weeks. It was 14 square miles, and it was surrounded by a wall, listen, that was 87 feet thick and 350 feet high. It had 100 great bronze gates, and there was a system of an inner and outer wall with a moat in between it which made the city seem impenetrable. So Belshazzar is inside. In fact, the top of the wall that went around Babylon was so broad and strong that chariots would actually parade across the top of the city gate, the city wall. And no battering ram would ever be able to knock it down. But how long could Babylon hold off the siege of the impending Persian army? Well, they had built their city over the Euphrates River, and the gates actually crossed over the river so that they always had a supply of fresh water coming into the city. And historians have said they had enough food for 20 years 
And so they're having a party inside, an orgy inside, and they're laughing. They're laughing at the God of Israel who said, you will be succeeded by another nation. And you just get this internal sense of hubris and pride and utter contempt for the God of Israel and his prophecy that the kingdom of Babylon would fall to another. No, no, our defense is sure. Our walls are strong. Our defense is impenetrable. No one will bring an end to this kingdom. Let's drink to that out of the vessels of the God of Yahweh who predicted our decline. You get the sense of absolute arrogance and pride? That's what's going on here. And man has many words, but God always has the last word. And here's what it is in verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a hand, a human hand, appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And this is where we get the writings on the wall. You know, the hand of God is on the wall writing that your doom is sure. This is going to come to an end. And the king knew it immediately. He was so cocky at the beginning of this great party. And then all of a sudden, he can't even stand up. His knees are knocking. His color changes. And he realizes that the writing on the wall is there. It's interesting that he wasn't afraid of the army outside the walls. And then he sees the hand of God, and he's terrified. He can hardly stand up. Verse 7 says, the king loudly called to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows it to me, the interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and be a third ruler in the kingdom. That's Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and then whoever can tell me what this writing on the wall means. Now listen, you see the writing on the wall with a hand? When have you ever seen the finger of God, right? You think about the Ten Commandments and God inscribing in stone. I think about all the times that God worked to deliver Moses from Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said, oh, certainly the hand of God is here. The hand of God comes with judgment. You even have a picture of Jesus in the New Testament, John chapter 8, where they bring a, a woman caught in adultery and Jesus says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And then he takes his finger and he writes in the sand. He's simply indicating that when the hand of God writes truth, you better pay attention. It will come true. It's real. And so this hand on the wall starts writing. Well, he's terrified and he calls the wise men to try to get to interpret it. They can't interpret it. We're going to skip through some of the long narrative again and you get to verse 17, and Daniel answered and said to the king, no, you know, let those gifts be for yourself, and you give the rewards to another, because he promised if you be able to tell this interpretation, I'll give you all these rewards. Nevertheless, verse 17, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar to your father, 
kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And he begins to record the history of the Babylon Empire since Israel joined them. And he relates to that. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar's story, which we won't rehearse again. And verse 20 just summarizes, but when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken away from him until he knew, everybody, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it whom he will. This is the message, that there is a Most High God, and he's sovereign over all of these affairs. Daniel announces that to Belshazzar. I wonder why all of the other astrologers and magicians couldn't tell the writing. It's a fairly simple writing, but they couldn't do it. It could be that they were too drunk. Or it could be that they were too afraid to actually say because the message is ominous. And they may have been afraid to be anything but yes-men to Belshazzar, so they're not going to tell it. And they demand that finally Daniel comes in to give the interpretation. And the interpretation is in verse 22. You doing okay? Convince me? Are you doing all right? Okay, this is, this is the meat of the message right here. Verse 22 and 23. It's like, here's Daniel stepping in, speak truth to power. Belshazzar is at a table, drunk, but terrified for his life. And this is what Daniel says to him in verse 23. And you, his son, Nebuchadnezzar's, your forefather, you, his son, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. This is such a phrase of condemnation. You knew all of this but you have not humbled your heart. You lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the God of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. And this, everybody, is the judgment of God. This is the rationale for why the kingdom comes to a close. There are three things in particular that you should note here. <clears throat> Number one, that you sinned knowingly. It is a terrible thing to know what is right and wrong and to transgress it deliberately. The Psalms pray, Lord, forgive me for my sins, for presumptuous sins, and for sins that I'm not even aware. But when you sin presumptuously because you absolutely know the truth and you know the prophetic word of God, uh, in this case to Nebuchadnezzar and his descendants and now to Belshazzar, you knew what the truth was. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And yet you lifted up your head <clears throat> in pride. It is the worst of sins to know the truth. Listen, to hear it again and again and again and to reject it and not yield to it. To know what Jesus did, for example, and yet refuse to yield to Him is the worst of sins, which is why, think about this context in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus talked to the Pharisees. And He's comparing a judgment that will come on them. It will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah 
in the judgment than for you. Why does he make that? Because they knew and they willfully abandoned the truth of God. This is the basis of the judgment that's coming on Babylon. And the vessels that you brought in before you, you, you drank out of them. You, you just blaspheme God. Can I use a colloquial phrase that you'll... <clears throat> yes, I can. You drank out of these cups. You have to get the sense that what Belshazzar is doing to go get these, bring them in, is to say, I'm going to give God the finger. That's what they were doing. And then God's finger showed up. And think about it. That's what was in their heart. I will tell you, God, we will never be conquered. And they blasphemed him. And they worshiped empty idols. God, you have not honored. God, who is the one who has your breath, he gives you life. He's the one who holds you in his hand, and you have not honored him. You've worshiped all of these other empty idols. Look, this is a heavy judgment message. Ooh. And here it is. If you could just summarize it, they knew the truth and they rejected it. And you think, are there any similarities to a culture like Babylon? Let's think about our own culture where we have been saturated with the truth of God. The United States is a nation and a society that knows the truth. It's been given to us. It was founded here. And you're looking at this society that comes to an end in about 200 years. They knew the truth. They rejected it. They gave themselves to drunkenness and being high, to sexual debauchery of every kind, to the love of all of these other things of wealth and gold and silver, to blasphemy and mocking God and mocking God's standard and perverting justice. They had a false sense of security. They had corrupt leaders, self-focused, full of pride. And man, do you just not see how unrestrained sin leads to destruction? Does it ever make you worried about cultures that we know today? I'm telling you, it does. And the worst part about it is that pride blinds us from the danger that judgment is coming. When a society and a civilization, um, you, you know, typically follow this kind of a pattern, that it rises to a certain height, and then at a certain height it becomes filled with pride and self-confidence and hubris, and self-indulgence, and materialism, and then it begins to descend into debauchery, degeneration, evil, and as it descends, it becomes subject to a closer and closer total decay, not from the outside, but from the inside. Don't you think that could happen? Most society, societies that know God and forget Him and blaspheme His name are always marked out for judgment because pride takes over, indulgences, sexual perversion of every kind are the part of that. And taking the symbol 
of the vessels was just sort of the final way of taking what is God's and making it corrupt. That's happening in our world today. I show you a symbol that God gave to display His mercy and His judgment and His kindness and His covenantal promise. This is one of God's symbols. There it is. That's God's. He gave it to show mercy, covenantal promise. And next month, the month of June, is of all names, Pride Month. And that symbol will be hijacked. God's symbol and shown to be blasphemed. When a nation forgets God, it's marked for judgment. We should pay attention, don't you think? Here's what Daniel said. Verse 24. From his presence... This is Daniel saying that from his presence, the hand was sent. From whose presence? God's presence. This hand is sent. This hand is sent from God. And the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Three words, once given twice for emphasis, I think. Verse 26, the interpretation of the matter Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. The writing's on the wall. Mene, mene. It simply means that God has numbered. It's the word numbered. And God has brought your kingdom to an end. As he will, every kingdom and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever. All of our days are numbered. He knows the days of our numbered and Daniel simply says, mene, mene, it's over for you. And, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. You've been put on a scale with a standard weight, and you aren't heavy enough to be just, to be right. You're, you're put in the scale and found wanting. That there's some corruption in you that you don't measure up to God's standard, Belshazzar. And Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It's over. Now that's the judgment that comes down. And Daniel is the one who stands there to make it known. And everything around him was a total blasphemy to God. And the law of God had been uprooted. And you think about where we live today you know, what would God say about our world? And who, who will stand to say what the Word of God says, that this is true? Daniel is a beautiful picture of what we're going to do in a couple minutes when we pray for our seniors and send them out. He was a guy who said in verse 17, I will read you what God says, and I'll tell you what it means. And brothers and sisters, this is what our job is, to tell what has God said and what does it mean in a day in which there's a lot of confusion about what that is. 
You can do it with love and compassion and grace and truth that this is what Daniel said. I'll tell you what God says. And that's all we have left to do to say exactly what Daniel did here. And if they're going to find something that Daniel didn't like, let him be guilty of being totally devoted to God in the midst of this world. We saw earlier in the chapters that Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, but actually he's living in the lion's den now. He's living in it, and all around him are the enemies of God. And he gets to be the one in the spot to say, this is what God promised he would do. We should pray for our society, don't you think? We should pray for our world. We should pray that the truth of God might be remembered. Don't you, don't you remember this? And let it be true of us that none of us would ever be here in a way that we would, that we would sin after knowing the truth. So I just want to call you to think back about what, what is this Old Testament lesson for us? It's a lesson to say that God always keeps his word. I was thinking that because we're going to pray for our seniors, uh, maybe I should give a commencement address to our seniors. I, I won't do that, but I'll give it to all of us. L let me give it to all of us. If you were to think, how would you, um, how would you respond to God? Well, one thing you know is that God's word is true. It's always true. Here it, it came true here, from chapter two to, to this. In the seventieth year, you're going to go to captivity for seventy years. Somebody else is going to succeed you at the end of this reign, and it comes to fruition. And the other thing about it is we know we'll all be weighed in the balance. So cling to Jesus, and don't be found wanting. It's not that we have our own sufficiency of ourselves, but we cling to Jesus who forgives sinners like us, who once were everything that we see in this chapter. But God has saved us while we were sinners, while we were enemies, we sang this morning. Um, secondly, don't be swept up in pride and self-reliance. We have that in our culture as part of a, a, a DNA to be self-reliant. It's a good part of that. But ultimately, we, we belong to God and we trust in Him for all of these things. When Daniel spoke these words to them, he, he was rewarded. The king gave him the purple robe and gold necklace. It's kind of crazy because that very night, um, verse 30 says, that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. It's over that night. Well, what happened? Well, the armies outside diverted the river Euphrates and poured it away from the city so that the water receded. And while everybody inside is in a drunken stupor, they march underneath the wall take out the guards in there, throw open the gates, and the army comes in, and that night all of them are killed. And a transition of power occurred that night. Does God keep his word? Okay, so that's a warning and a blessing. It's a blessing that God keeps his word. And these things were written for our instruction that by, by knowing them, we really would have hope. And I know there's a little heavy in this this morning, but is there not hope too? There's hope if you believe that God's word is true and that he always keeps his word, that he will weigh us all in the balance. And if you cling to Christ, you're good. 
we will live in a day when those say, woe to those who say evil is good and good is evil and light is dark and dark is light and sweet is bitter and bitter is sweet and the whole world's turned upside down and God rules the kingdoms of men. Our God reigns. All right, I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to bring Patrick up and he's going to introduce our graduates this morning for whom we, we pray go out with this kind of blessing in a great confidence of knowing God's word is true. He keeps his word and he draws near to us as we draw near to him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you that you've written some things of gravity and earnestness and warning in your word that you would teach us how to live in the day we are. And I pray that this morning as we study the book of Daniel and know your sovereign hand in the affairs of men, you know your righteousness and your judgment, Lord, that our hearts would be drawn to trust in you, to rest in you, to follow your rule in our lives, and to speak what you have spoken with a kind of confidence and assurance To be free of idolatry, immorality, pride. Lord, rule in our hearts, we pray. And we pray for our world. We pray for our, our city. We pray for our state and our nation. And we pray, O oh God, that in these days, your Holy Spirit would call repentance to remember God and your word and your law. We pray that you'll bring revival and renewal for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.